when we start projecting forward to what might go wrong or this is this is so important right now i've done this shot a thousand times you're completely out of your element and you're no longer allowing the kinetic chain in this case to just deliver the object towards the target the rational view is a weekly series hosted by me dr alan scott providing a rational evidence-based perspective on important societal issues Produced by Soapbox Media. The world needs evidence-based public policy now more than ever. Making the right decisions should not be partisan politics. Please help spread the rational view by going to patron.podbean.com slash the rational view. Together, we can make a better future. Hello and welcome to another episode of The Rational View. I'm your host, Dr. Al Scott. On this episode, I'm going to be chatting with my childhood friend, Andy Vasily, host of the Run Your Life podcast. Uh, Andy is coming on the show and we're going to chat about uh, learning and his work in coaching professional athletes is all about uh, understanding how to influence your own brain. And that has a real cool uh, intersection with the work that I've been doing, interviewing uh, people about consciousness and about artificial intelligence, all of these things come together to understand how we think and how our brains operate and how it impacts our lives and how we can change that. So I've been more looking at the hows and he's been more looking at the applications, say, of, of this work. So it's going to be very an interesting conversation. I hope you enjoy it. So stay tuned. If you like what you're hearing, please hit that like button on your podcast app. Uh, send me a review. This is all helps me to get the rational view out to more people, get more people interested. Thank you for listening. And with no further ado, here's the conversation. So I'm here with my buddy, Andy Vasily from long, long ago. Uh, we've had a, a few talks previously on, on our podcasts. We've chatted. Uh, so the topic of consciousness and, and learning came up. In, in discussions. And we thought we would like to have a discussion on, on, you know, what is consciousness and how does it affect learning? So I've, I've done a series of podcasts with some real experts in the field on, on consciousness to try to understand, you know, what is consciousness? And, and Andy, you've done a lot of work, uh, on, on learning for, for sport and you, you do coaching in, in sport and, and helping yeah. people to, to learn how to manage their consciousness and how to manage yeah. how these things affect them. So to maybe just set the basis of things, you know, what I've learned in consciousness, we can't even define consciousness. Mm -hmm. People don't understand when they use the word consciousness, they don't, it, it's imprecise. It's very uh, blurry. It, it incorporates a lot of different concepts. So we really need to focus in on what we mean by consciousness. Def mm -hmm. Definitions are key to having a meaningful discussion there's so there's sentience is one aspect of consciousness and that's just the de defined as the ability to perceive the world around us and and mm -hmm. be present in the world mm -hmm. uh, to be aware of our senses and experience being without anything else that's just sentience and, and then we can go beyond this and note that uh we can attach emotion and, and a kind of a valence to our current mm -hmm. mindset and our environment and our experiences um 
So that, that's maybe another aspect of consciousness mm-hmm. is the emotional valence of our experience. And then further, you can become self-aware or, or sapient. And mm-hmm. that includes an understanding of the concept that you are an entity that's separate from the world around you and can affect the world around you. And this can include the ability to plan and have goal-oriented behaviors. And each of these, I think, are different levels of consciousness. And sometimes when people say consciousness, they mean one, they mean the other, they mean all of these. And they're not necessarily all coming from the same spot, as, as scientists are finding out, is that, you know, some of these are, are very basic, um, you know, all cells have some sort of a awareness of their environment, right? But mm-hmm. higher organisms have more complex levels and there's a lot of gray in between there doesn't seem to be any switch where you just turn on consciousness so let's hear about what you're interested in this discussion mm-hmm. Andy. well that's what i was saying to you is like i wanted to know why you were so interested in this idea of consciousness in your own work and mm-hmm. you shared that you've always had this innate fascination with um, how we've come to be and how we've come to think about ourselves our place in the world mm-hmm. and for me, that has been very much a part of my journey over the last 20 years. So as an international educator, um, I've always been fascinated with teaching and learning. But then when I really started to dig into it, like, how is it that kids learn best? Right? And, and how is it that teachers create the conditions for kids to learn best? And that put me on a path of, I don't want to say self-discovery, but that put me on a very unique path where I was trying to understand what it means to be at our best and to learn at our best and to reveal our potential and to access our potential and, and then try to access the best of ourselves when it counts the most. And then mm-hmm. that led me to the, this idea of performance psychology and coaching. And because I have an athletic background, um, I had played competitive American football and golf for many years. And I remember one of my biggest frustrations uh, in competition was not showing up as my best self, letting right. myself get in the way of performance. And back in the day, it was called choking, and it still is. But, yeah, yeah. but we know so much more about it. But then you have these transcendent experiences on the football field or on, on the sport field, whatever the sport may be, where back in the day, it was called being in the zone where you have these transcendent experiences where it doesn't even feel like you playing, where time ceases to exist and you're performing in in amazing ways that you never thought you were capable of. But what that shows is you're actually capable of performing in that way, right? So untapped potential being fulfilled. So that really led me down this path of, how can I work with people, whether it be coaching PhD students or coaching athletes, to identify the barriers that get in the way of them showing up as their best selves? And when I found you starting to do this work on consciousness, I was like, I wonder what he's learning about consciousness because consciousness is our, you know, in our heads, the way that we make sense of the world around us, the way we make sense of our past narrative, our present narrative and our future narrative. And Mm. there's so much evidence around this idea that our personal narrative narratives are constructed on many past experiences and how we, we came to learn about the world and people around us from a very early age. Were we safe or not safe? 
Um, how was success celebrated in our life or not celebrated in our life? How were our identities um, defined by our successes or lack of successes? How were we defined by failure? How did we process failure? Like all of these questions. So I'll throw it back to you now to share what's resonating with you based on what I just said and yeah. what where your learning of consciousness has taken you over the past um you know, a few years. I want to go back to what you said about, you know, how your consciousness can get in the way of your peak performance. And and I think that's something that resonates with me quite a bit. I mean, so we've instinctively linked consciousness to intelligence as, as people. Mm -hmm. We personify everything. We have one example of consciousness and, and we don't know what what else is is sentient or sapient out there. So we naturally think, okay, well we what separates us from everything else? And we're intelligent. So intelligence and consciousness kind of go together, but we're not sure there's any a priori reason that one needs to be particularly intelligent to be sapient or vice versa. Mm -hmm. um, and in fact, a lot of people argue that these aren't linked and, and there's separate concepts, in fact, and, and mm -hmm. we're finding that out. And this is what's led me into looking at artificial intelligence. Mm -hmm. And the philosophers out there, uh, you know, talking about the, the hard problem of consciousness, they say, well, you know, could there be such a thing as, as these philosophical, these, these zombies that have no awareness of, or no self-awareness, but are intelligent and acting and, and people will say, well, that's impossible. You can't do that. But we don't know that's impossible. In fact, there's a great online novel called Blind Sight, uh, by Peter Watts. It's available freely as a Canadian author. And, it's a it's a science fiction type uh book but the 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 thesis of this theory or this book is that you know it posits intelligence without sapience in an alien species so we have these intelligent aliens that have no awareness you can't communicate with them um and indeed you know many would argue that chat gpt and artificial intelligence are prime examples of this disconnect these Computers aren't self-aware, but they are showing signs of intelligence. In fact, super intelligence. They're more intelligent than people in many cases. And mm -hmm. these are designed based on simulations of brain structure as to how we think our brains work. So then the question becomes, if these things are designed to work like our brains and they're producing outputs that seem intelligent, are they also self-aware? And people say, no, no, it's just a computer. It's just processing. There's no quote unquote soul in the computer, but you know, physics doesn't have room for a soul. There's no real, um, hypothesis that would say that we're, our brains are any different than a computer. Like it's physics. We have atoms that move back and forth, voltages, potentials, ones and zeros. It's all processing. Uh, and so. The question is, where does this come from? And, and, you know, why are we self-aware and what is the distinction? What causes self-awareness? And nobody knows. This is one of mm -hmm. the great questions of our time is like, no, it are, is this a proper, an innate property of the universe? Is everything self-aware to some extent? And we're just tapping into it with our neural networks. So the, the takeaway from this is that Neural networks are intelligent. You can make neural networks intelligent. We have one in our heads. 
mm-hmm. and we can train it. And we can take a lot from this in understanding how we learn and how we train these neural networks. We pretty well know how intelligent behavior is formed. And it's very possible that our, our willpower and our self-awareness is a separate thing that just maybe came about through a ev- evolutionary accident and just kind of hangs around and watches these processes go forward. Maybe we don't have free will at all. Maybe it, we're just a, a system of an intelligent neural network and this, this observer, this consciousness, which is creating a narrative of, of what the, what the brain is doing. And, and, and if you look at uh, medical studies on people that have had their corpus callosum uh, severed, they actually have two separate um, intelligences effectively controlling each half of the body. And you know, one hand may be unbuttoning your shirt, uh, and but it could be the brain section that's controlling that is different than the brain section that controls your, your narrative. And mm-hmm. so you could ask this person, what are you doing? And, you know, you could... Sorry, let, let me let me do this properly. So they show like one eye, mm-hmm. an instruction to take off your clothes. Mm-hmm. So the hand starts unbuttoning the shirt. You ask the you ask the person, "What are you doing, or why are you un- taking off your shirt?" And they'll say, "I'm taking it off because I'm too hot." Like there's two separate things, and the yeah. one part didn't get the message that you were being instructed to take off your clothes. So it makes a narrative about why it's doing that. Mm-hmm. And this is how our brains work. That's it's really to, to make sense and scary. Of, yeah, yeah. <laughs> to make sense of our narratives, right? Or to make sense of what's happening. And that's, you know, Daniel Goleman. Have you heard of Daniel Goleman, emotional intelligence? He's done a lot of work around um, emotional intelligence. I've heard of him. And what he talks about is this idea of building the skill of deepening self-awareness in order to identify habitual ways of showing up that we were not aware of. Right. So unconsciously, we've developed uh, coping mechanisms and defense mechanisms in our life to protect ourselves. As from an evolutionary point of view, we've done that for ages. But now in modern times, we no longer have to protect ourselves from the saber toothed tiger that's going to jump out from behind a bush, but we have to still protect ourselves from unknown threats. Okay. So going back to kind of the work around performance psychology and with athletes, you try to dig down into what's getting in the way of them showing up as their best self. And oftentimes it's fear of judgment in the arena of competition, fear of what other people will think of them, you know? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So um, this work around self-awareness is to catch yourself in the moment when these habitual ways of thinking are showing up, right? And when we can catch ourselves in the moment and ask ourselves better questions, we can program our neural networks to work better for us and to even use our neurotransmitters in a better way to to work for us. Dopamine and these reward uh, chemicals. So as you're describing how we became self-aware now i you know the the research is suggesting that we can deepen self-awareness in order to um, bring on our best selves and our best performance and that's what i'm i'm really fascinated by 
And there's no one right answer, but it's conversations like this and talking our way through it that we look at it through different lenses of possibility, right? Yeah, yeah. I, I think we can take a lot from from artificial intelligence and neural networks. Um, the the research there on how to program these things and how to train them is the same as learning effectively. Yeah. You know, you're and and you know it. Sh- it shows that it kind of uh, echoes the the trope that practice doesn't practice doesn't make perfect. Practice makes permanent. Uh, only perfect practice makes perfect. So Purposeful. the data set Purpose, that yeah. you train these things on yeah. can have holes in it, and it can have problems that uh, get that mean that the network is solving problems based on the wrong things. You know, it may be getting the right answers, but for the wrong reasons. Mm -hmm. Uh, Like, you know, you you try to identify um, certain things in pictures. So you're training a network to identify things in pictures. Mm -hmm. And it could be triggering in on completely the wrong things. Like, you know, for, you know, for, for school buses, say, you know, you tell it to identify school buses and, and instead, what it identifies is is crosswalks because all of the pictures of the school bus it stopped at a crosswalk. It's okay. This is a, you know, something yeah. something silly. That's it's a you know mm-hmm. a poor example perhaps, but these training data sets have biases in them that mm-hmm. then get entrained into the artificial intelligence, and we learn. You know, this is a this is the same as our brains, and and so a neural network is a bunch of nodes that that just interact, and learning adjusts the weights of the nodes. So you have an input image. And you go through various levels of nodes to an output. Mm-hmm. And you have all of these random weights that can be trained so that, you know, when you see a bus here, you light up the bus light on the output node. And if you see a cat, it lines up the, the cat yeah. node. And this is how these networks are trained. And, and they can be somewhat self-recursive. You get this thing where they are adjusting themselves. Mm-hmm. Um, and this is one school that this is how thought actually happens in our brains is that we're just mm-hmm. a recursive networks and it's possible that our consciousness is just a way to adapt those inputs and, and change out of the loops that we might get stuck in otherwise and you know and, and this is where people see free will coming in you know the the consciousness or the awareness has goals for us so, so we when have you say free will do you mean agency yeah 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 i mean that, that that's a fraught concept as well from physics you know yeah, yeah there's yeah. no lever for a soul to push on in physics but mm-hmm. you know it, it's very possible that there's there is randomness in the world and mm-hmm. it and we can uh adjust our outcomes to be in line with our our goals so mm-hmm. this that's what the consciousness does is we mm-hmm. we have wants and we adjust our neural networks to achieve these goals and it, it may it may be that this is all deterministic that we don't have any sort of like there is no ghost in the machine all of our wants and needs and knowledge comes from previous interactions it comes from our learning from our parents it comes from our learning from our environment mm-hmm. these things get in place and we are acting in concert with these goals is mm-hmm. that not the definition of free will even well, if it's deterministic yeah, and the interesting thing here is that yes, we are we are pre-programmed to behave and think and uh, act in certain ways based on what you're saying, 
And I think a lot of the neuroscience uh, research and evidence around performance, I keep going back to this idea of performance. I don't care if it's Mm -hmm. being the best public speaker that you can be on the stage, being the best researcher you can be, or being the best athlete you can be. Um, It's trying to create the conditions, consciously create the conditions to meet our goals and do our best. And some fascinating research out of Stanford that I came across a few months ago uh, really made a difference in my performance coaching because I always take athletes or you know PhD students about to do a presentation. I get them to try to visualize how they want to show up on the stage or when they're presenting or I'm coaching a, a semi-pro Irish boxer right now and how he wants to show up in competition, right? And I used to think, I I mean, I used to think the visualizations were very powerful. I still do. Mm -hmm. I now think, though, based on this work um, from Stanford, is this idea of learning a new skill. Let's just take, for example, golf, okay? And when you're learning this very... um, mechanical swing, right? Rather than visualizing yourself hitting a shot, like going through the visualization from start to finish, seeing the ball fly through the air, seeing the ball land where you want it to land in the way that you want it to land, okay? That takes 8, 12, 15 seconds to go through that visualization. And a lot of the research says that after a couple seconds, we get really fuzzy and we can no longer stick as much as we want to the longer visualization. So it loses mm. its impact. So this research out of Stanford says that rather than looking at the whole visualization, pick a particular piece in the swing that you're working on. So maybe it's the transition from the backswing to the downswing. Just that little micro movement. And mm. rather than visualize the whole swing you do repetitions of that micro movement, okay? So which is like a tenth of a second, right? So just like we go to the gym and we do bench press and we do four sets of 15 reps, 12 to 15 reps, you're literally doing four sets of, I think the, the optimal number was like 30 to 40 reps of this visualization, so you're you're taking it and you you're thinking of the down the the backswing to the downswing backswing to the downswing you're feeling that transition you're feeling how maybe the weight is just going to start to shift a little bit and it has had a profound impact on improving skill learning a new skill and and refining an existing skill right yeah and, and what's happening when you do that is that those neurons that control that motion are firing and yeah. we find that the neurons that fire the most strengthen their connections. Yes, so exactly. You're strengthening a pathway in your brain that, that governs that part of your swing when doing that. So we, we understand from the basis of neural networks that we've showed in, in artificial intelligence systems that works. This is what you're doing. And, and we can do this numerically with these uh, artificial intelligences. You know, we can intervene to change weights of things, although we don't understand you know, which nodes to play with. Um, yeah. We know that, you know, if you get a better result, then you strengthen that result in the nodes and things 
will improve. The thing will get smarter. And that's exactly yeah. what you're doing. It's, it's, you're adjusting the neural network in your brain by doing that. So taking something that's unconsciously happening that we have no control of in our mind and consciously creating the conditions to tap into the unconscious to be able to do that. Right. Mm -hmm. yeah. So that's what's fascinating about meshing these two worlds together and what's possible. So you're using AI as an example and then taking this idea and um, applying it to real life skill development. So it just doesn't mm -hmm. have. So with the Irish boxer, the Irish boxer lost a fight because he wasn't expecting the guy to come out like gangbusters at him and just start throwing a bunch of punches. He was completely surprised by that. And he was trying in the moment to figure out what to do. And he realized he was missing a key technique, which was like a slide, like sliding away. And at the same time, coming with a cross and trying to catch him in the side. Right. Mm -hmm. So he literally, it was, it was a new move for him. And he went through these, these repetitions in his mind and he won his next fight using this strategy. And he did not have that skill in the previous fight, but he, there, there had been a month or a month and a half that lapsed between the fights. But for him, he talked about this idea that he could never visualize, but these shorter visualizations were possible for him because they were just short and intense bursts of visualization. So it's going back to like m making the impossible possible yeah. by consciously choosing our actions, you know? So, um, how does that resonate with you and how might that apply not in your work, but in what you're learning about learning and consciousness? This actually has important uh, ramifications in mental health as well. Mm -hmm. um, you'll see people that get into patterns of negative thinking. Mm -hmm. um, so they, they, you know, look on the, on the dark side of everything. They're pessimistic and, and they start their mind starts spiraling down a rabbit hole. What's the worst thing that could happen? And, yeah. and they, and they get stuck in these patterns and don't recognize it. And by getting stuck into these patterns, it's the same thing as visualizing success, but in the wrong direction, mm -hmm. they are strengthening those pathways. So more often than not, they will go down these pathways. And what, what people are saying is you need to consciously recognize when you're getting into this pattern and you need to mm -hmm. stop your thought process and you need to, to think about, okay, well, what's the best thing that could happen? Mm -hmm. And by making these changes in your thought processes, you strengthen other pathways in your brain so that they will automatically or mm -hmm. unconsciously pick up the, the thread rather than the negative thought process. You have to, and, and your brain is, is malleable at this level of yeah. neuronal connections. Like your, these connections are constantly being adjusted and, a lot of work has been going into, you know, how do we uh, learn effectively and what are the things that we can do to learn effectively? And I've heard of, of, from what I've read, I've seen several different methods for improving this, this strengthening of neuronal connections. One is doing it and then sleeping. Yeah. So if you do things before sleep, uh, the brain in dreaming reinforces what you were doing. Lovely. So the, the sort of thing you're doing just before you go to sleep, have a little nap. Mm -hmm. cement your learning. That's one thing. Mm -hmm. Other things are, um, uh, aware. So to, to be, become aware of something, you have to have your, your brain releases chemicals, which can help adjust these neurons. And another thing that does it is fear or, or 
you know, strong emotions. Strong emotions will help you learn. And this is just an evolved response, right? If you are frightened, your your body will learn to adapt so that if you, if you if you're attacked by a jaguar and you survive, you will learn something and, will learn and not be able to, you know, be better next time. Mm-hmm. So these chemicals in our brain will help us learn. But if you're just kind of in a monotonous state and not focused, then it doesn't do as much. But if you have, you know, these strong emotional responses while you're doing it, you will, you'll remember the, you know, this is why you remember things better when they have emotional content to them. And emotions may be the way that the body, you know, use uh, one of the ways that the body uses or or leverages this neural network that we've evolved to have, you know, to make it better is, is the, these emotions help us make it better. Yeah. So it's a very interesting way to, 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 to learn better. Yeah. And, and so some of the work that I'm doing with the PhD students right now up here. So we have a, um, a combustion engineering lab, uh, up here at the university at Coast in Saudi Arabia. And they're doing phenomenal work. So they're creating the, the clean fuel for the F1 McLaren team. Um, mm. amazing group of, of researchers and, and students. And so, um, when I'm working with them, we often like they're overwhelmed, right? Because they have so much work to do. So we just simply look at how they're managing time. Okay. Mm-hmm. So when we get our neurochemistry working for us, we choose to do the, the most demanding cognitive tasks first thing in the morning when we're operating on op, uh, optimal cognitive capacity. So we build in, we consciously build in active recovery time. We make sure that we get the conditions right before going to sleep so that we're, we're maximizing sleep, maximizing cognitive capacity so that when they wake up in the morning, they're ready to do great work. But like you just hit the nail on the head is sleeping after to solidify and consolidate learning, right? Well, mm-hmm. in this case, we get the researchers, whether it be coding or, or whatever they deem to be their most cognitively demanding task, we get them to schedule that first thing in the day. Okay. So mm-hmm. they, we work with them on a, a morning routine that has them uh, being at their best when they get to work and not wasting any cognitive energy. So again, this is a conscious choice, but they're mm-hmm. tapping into unconscious ways of, uh, uh, unconscious ways of, of showing up so that their brain is working for them and their, their neurochemistry is working for them. So after they do this 90 minute session of deep, intense work, the next step is to go for a walk or take a nap or even do light exercise. Whatever it is, is to take that conscious break so that it, uh, their learning is, is being solidified or consolidated or they're recovering to then go into their next kind of uh, deep work uh, mm-hmm. session. So mm-hmm. again, going back to what you're saying is it's using your neurochemistry for you, not against you. So the mm-hmm. idea of working, burning the can- candle at both ends and working 18 hours a day used to be a badge of honor. We know too much now, right? That suggests otherwise. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. One of the interesting things that I I've learned from this, uh, and it, it's it's kind of a a corollary to the way 
we learn things and to the, to the what I was talking about about novelty and, and emotion uh, cementing learning or, yeah. or allowing your brain to become more plastic is that this actually corresponds to our sense of time uh, and if you if you look back over your life many people will say that you know it seemed like you have oodles of time when you're young but as you're older time runs by faster mm-hmm. right time time passes a lot faster and accelerates as you get older and the reason is that novel experiences come less frequently mm-hmm. and so your brain stores these as memory signposts as significant mm-hmm. events and as you become more blasé about the universe you you more things you understand you're not surprised as much by things that are happening you okay i know what that that sound is the clock this is a a car you know you you understand these things you're not storing your brain isn't storing new memories mm-hmm. you store new memories based on novelty and emotional content and if mm-hmm. the frequency of novelty is going down then the number of signposts that you can look back on in your memory are more spread out. So time appears to compress as you get mm. older because of that. And you, so you can actively choose to introduce novelty in your life. And that's, and that helps with performance. Mm-hmm. It absolutely helps with performance. I was listening to a podcast on a run last night, in fact, where this uh, researcher um, was talking about this idea that this was like back in the 1920s or 30s, where he was talking about some uh, company, organization, whatever, uh, productivity was much lower. So they brought in this consultant who looked at the factory setup and then saw these dark curtains over the windows at the top of the factory and just said, just simply remove the curtains. They removed the curtains and productivity skyrocketed for a few months and then it went wow. down again. So then the consultant came back and said, Put the curtains back up. So it's this idea of introducing something new every, yeah, introducing something new every so often. And that's, again, that's what we do. That's what I do with the work with the PhD students, depending on the type of work they're doing, choose a, a, a novel, kind of a new area to do this work. If they don't have to stay at their desk in the office, find someplace else at the university to do certain types of work where there's open light or go to a different coffee shop, whether they're, they're writing a paper or whatever it is they're doing. So it, it is this idea of novelty. So that's a conscious choice to mm-hmm. introduce it. Once you have the information available to you on what it, high performance means and what you can do to perform at your best, you are now making that available as a conscious choice, right? Mm-hmm. And, and so many people just fall into these habitual ways of, of doing and being and showing up that they're not willing to really change the, the way that they do things. We know too much now to, to just allow that to happen in our life, you know, so we can continue to do the same things or we can introduce novelty and try to introduce new things to help us, um, you know, perform better. And, and with that comes higher levels of well-being and fulfillment. That's cool. So I want to go back to something you were talking about in, in your work. You train people to kind of get out of their heads to, to perform better, to get the, to set aside the conscious processing and mm-hmm. lean into the um, unconscious models that you've built up that you know get you sort of your peak 
mm-hmm. performance and get rid of the yips effectively. Mm-hmm. So, you know, this is something that, you know, I've struggled with in, in my sporting, like I, I play curling a lot. Um, uh, and it's definitely something that has always been an issue. So what, how do you, how do you turn off that conscious processing? How do you get mm-hmm. it out of the way? So give me an example in curling of when your mind gets in the way. When you're when you're shooting the the last rock in a in a competition and it you know all you need to do is something you've always done before but you're thinking about the consequences if you fail mm-hmm. or you know if you miss this you lose but it's an easy shot you should be yeah. able to make it so basically they say you shit the bed yeah <laughs> not you per se but but people this is this is a perfect example so immediately you're taking from being uh, you're taking uh, the focus away from being target focused to consequence focused, outcome focused. Yeah. So regardless of the sport, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter if it's a public speaker on the stage. When we start projecting forward to what might go wrong, or this is re- this is so important right now. I've done this shot a thousand times. You're completely out of your element, and you're no longer allowing the kinetic chain in this case to just deliver the object towards the target unencumbered yeah. with, without any barriers in the way. Um, so the idea is when I'm working with these athletes is really starting to get into their narrative when they've been able to show up as their best and examples of times that they haven't been. And more often than not, it's the thinking that gets in the way of letting the brain just just accomplish the task. So in this case, what we would what we would try to talk about is this idea of just staying in the present moment, tethering yourself to your breath in the present moment, trusting in your ability. You've done it a thousand times. This is no different. You're attaching meaning to this experience that doesn't need to be attached in this moment. What matters is tethering yourself to the present moment, anchoring yourself in the breath, and being focused on the target and delivering the object to the target. Mm -hmm. Uh, There was a study done, I think I might have talked to you about this before, but there was a study done with professional dart players. And the one group was told, they divided the, the group into two. So one group was told, you know, for an hour a day, they had to just throw one one dart after another. The one group was told, be really focused on your technique, really think about your technique. The object was to hit as many bullseyes as you could, right? Mm -hmm. And they measured the dispersion rate. So the group that, you know, was thinking elbow up, quick release, whatever, whatever it was they were focusing on, they collected all the data. The other group was just like, Get as many bullseyes as you can, right? So then okay. that group is just going choo, 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 target focused. At the end of the study, it was phenomenal the difference between the two. So the group that studied uh, or that focused exclusively on the target had something like a thirty-two percent higher rate of bullseyes and a twenty-five percent less dispersion rate because they were simply focused on the target, right? Mm-hmm. So a lot of players, when pressure is on and it counts the most, 
begin to think too much and begin to absorb themselves too much in the actual technique or or the outcome, what they want to happen. And you begin to constrict yourself mentally rather than creating this expansive state of possibility. So yeah, that's what I would say. Um, And what we would work on is some breathing techniques, some visualization, we would work on non-judgment, self-compassion. We would mm-hmm. work on being as target-focused as possible and then reflecting back on um, what that experience was like. So if you set a goal to um, be really target-focused this round, how, to what extent were you able to do that and mm-hmm. to reflect with non-judgment and just try to improve your ability to stay present uh, in the moment when it counts the most. This, this seems to highlight the difference between what they call muscle memory and conscious awareness, right? If mm-hmm. you're consciously directing something that you've never thought about, you, you have this muscle memory that just you just do things, right? You have this network, and whether it's your brain network or it's even just the neurons in your spine or next to your nerves that are that are that have created a pattern that you're used to doing in. In my in my impression, I think that the the conscious mind is there to to help you learn, but not help mm-hmm. you do. And mm-hmm. and I think this is a good example. Like it's just not fast enough to to smoothly go through everything. There's too many things that you have exactly. to think of that you can't be aware of all of yeah. them. Your conscious mm-hmm. mind yeah. is slow, and they've done they've done studies on this. Conscious mind mm-hmm. is behind the speed of reaction. It's, 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 you know, several milliseconds slow yeah, and even seconds in some cases. And so you have this muscle, like, you know, we've all done this. We've all gone to say, put in our pin number. And if you think about it, you can't remember it. But if you don't think about it, you put it in, right? It's a pattern that you're, you're used to putting in. And and if you don't think about it, you can, but if if someone asks you, what's your number, you can, uh, I don't remember. Let's go look it up. (laughs) Or or I I try to picture the pattern that my hand is doing, you know, so that thinking gets in the way. Thinking gets in the way. Yeah. And that's that idea of the the natural kinetic chain is disrupted by thinking, overanalyzing, Mm -hmm. you know, especially in the moment, in the arena of competition, when it counts the most, you know, when we start to get focused on the audience watching and what my coach is thinking about me. And if I screw up what my player, you know, my fellow players are going to think of me. When we go to that place, cortisol has spiked. We are literally choking ourselves off from Mm -hmm. being our best and showing up. So that's that idea, exactly what you're saying. So it is a skill that you can develop. My mentor, who I've talked about before, um, was the performance coach for the Seattle Seahawks, NFL Seattle Seahawks. He was one of the first ones to bring mindfulness to the NFL. And he had the players work on this nonstop every day, their ability to tape, stay present, trust oneself, and to trust and to know that you've done the hard work necessary to perform when it counts. Once we start entering in the self-criticism and all that, we begin to constrict ourselves. So it is a buildable skill to stay present when it counts. And one of my guests that I've had on my podcast, um, one of my recent guests was uh, Kobe Bryant and Michael Jordan's performance coach. 
His name's George Mumford. And uh, he worked with Kobe uh, probably the last eight years of his career. And what Kobe said about uh, George Mumford was that George just allowed me to be. He allowed me to be with with non-judgment, not project into the future or ruminate about the past. And what George talks about is this idea of Velcro gloves, that we often metaphorically wear these Velcro gloves so that when great things happen in our life, they stick to the Velcro gloves and they become a part of our self-identity. So we're building this narrative that is um, that is elevated by high performance, right? And then when bad things happen, oh, no, no, we want to push it away. But what happens is it sticks to our gloves, right? So we're developing a very unstable sense of identity, right? What George mm-hmm. says is drop the gloves, it's not about pushing away bad things or pulling good things in. It's just sitting alongside them. Just let them be as they are. And that's where the best learning is. And that's by staying open and curious about our performance and who we are and how we're showing up. Then we put ourselves in the best position possible to, um, on the last rock, nail it. Right? Indeed, indeed. Yeah, oh, it's fascinating, cool. but it does go back to this idea of consciousness and narrative and the narrative we are creating for ourselves. So when you do this kind of work, you're building a more empowering narrative and mm. consciously we have more good stuff to pull on as evidence of success, right? Mm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, that's really cool. So uh, this has been a great discussion. Um, I think. Uh, I hope I've learned a lot. I can take it back and, and, and win that curling game now. <laughs> uh, but yeah, a, a great discussion about how consciousness and learning interact. And it, mm-hmm. it's, you know, the philosophers out there are all over the place. I'll tell you this. They don't know. They yeah. don't know which is the, is the right model. Mm-hmm. We're starting to learn the science of it though. And I think the artificial intelligence and the neurology is going to get us to the key of how this is working. And, and I think you're, you're reaping the rewards of the work that's been done in, in neuroscience and learning how our brains function. Yeah. Well, and I'm think- interested in how AI is going to impact my field of coaching, you know, because right now, you know, you don't need me as a coach. You can go to AI and AI has some pretty good coaches right? You can plug in anything that you want to know about your own performance and AI will give you lots of strategies, you know? So Mm -hmm. I'm even thinking about how AI is going to impact my job as a performance coach. And now I'm thinking about, you know, like when it comes to like, just to conclude here, because this is my own curiosity, rather than push AI away and say, it's not human, it has no place in the world of coaching. The, you know, human connection is what matters most in coaching. Well, there are a lot of people mm-hmm. that can't afford coaches that can just get an AI coach and go to chat GPT and, you know, sure. get a whole coaching program for themselves. But where, what I'm curious about is, um, when you are trying to do something and get better at something, you need to ask yourself the right questions, right? So if you sit with me as a coach and we have a conversation, I want to facilitate your thinking around how you can ask yourself 
the most important questions needed based on your own context and what it is you're trying to learn. Right. If we can get you to create a bank of really relevant, con contextually relevant questions based on your own life and the goals you're setting for yourself, then maybe that's the coaching. And then you walk away and use AI because you have a bank of contextually relevant questions based on your own life. And then you yeah. can plug those questions in and AI will give you the answers that you need. And then we'll come together again in three or four months and reflect on your progress, consciously reflect on your progress where you have another human to, to interact with and talk to and reflect about the choices that you've made and your failures and your learning. And now you're going to have a different set of questions to take your learning deeper. So I'm just sharing that because this has been hot on my mind mm -hmm. and how I can accept AI as part of the field that I'm in now and not push it away, yeah. but to, to use it and to teach my clients how to use it by asking themselves the right questions. But then they can go to AI and say, what questions do I have to ask myself? So I, I don't know what I'm saying. It, it's, it's very powerful and um, it's not perfect yet. Um, yeah. There are still areas where it will make stuff up, um, diverge from reality. And I think that's where the people can come in and, and keep it grounded for now. It will get better. Yeah. Um, but right now it, it allows us as, as a civilization to be extremely, to, to accelerate our productivity if we want to. As an assistant, it's amazing how it can get rid of the grunt work in a lot of cases. If you can give it good instructions, it will go off and do things that would have taken you a lot of time. Uh, I think in medical fields, especially AI assistants are going to be significantly powerful for doctors yeah. to, to do better uh, diagnoses and yeah. treatment plans. Um, in programming, you know, it, it basically gets rid of the, the need to, to push out lots of boring code. You can do the architecting and tell it what you want and it yeah. will do the details for you. So yeah, exactly. think of it as an assistant. It's, it's a very powerful tool. Yeah. And I the, think uh, that's where it's going to yeah. find its the, the researchers up here that I'm coaching are using AI as, as part of trying to refine the formulas they're using to create cleaner fuel. So mm. they're, they're getting, they're getting AI to generate these formulas and then they simply put these formulas into action so they're using mm -hmm. ai to clean up the fuel even more mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. yeah, yeah. So no, very very cool yeah and it needs that sort of real world grounding that it doesn't have yet yeah and that helps improve its performance so that it doesn't yeah. quite have that you know, it, it's all kind of in a machine right now. Yeah. And what, one thing that differentiates us, our networks from AI, is that we have physical feedback from the universe in everything yeah. that we do. Yeah. And but the AIs just get modeled feedback, and there can be holes in models. And yeah. It can be yeah, a little sure. bit strange. Yeah. Well, it's so, been great chatting with you, man. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you so much for for coming and, and chatting. We should do this again sometime. Yeah. Learned yeah, a lot. I look, I look forward to it. Thank you. If you'd like to follow up with more in-depth discussions, please come find us on Facebook at The Rational View and join our discussion group. If you like what you're hearing, please consider visiting my Patreon page at patron.podbean.com slash The Rational View. Thanks for listening.